1 Peter chapter 3, beginning in verse 18. For Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the Spirit, in which he went and proclaimed to the spirits in prison, because they formerly did not obey when God's patience waited in the days of Noah, while the ark was being prepared, in which a few people, that is, eight persons, were brought safely through the water. Baptism, which corresponds to this, now saves you not as a removal of dirt from the body, but as an appeal to God for a good conscience through the resurrection of Jesus Christ, who's gone into heaven and is at the right hand of God with angels and authorities and powers having been subjected to him. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we come before you this day thankful again that you're a God who has spoken, spoken clearly, And in your mercy, superintended what you said being written down for us and made available to us in accurate forms. Beyond that, part of the ministry of your Holy Spirit is to illumine our hearts. And so, Lord, as we study what you've said, would that illumining of our hearts take place in this day? Make it plain to us what you've said, why you've said it, how it applies. Guide our thinking. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Very quick review. You remember since verse 13 in this third chapter, we've been discovering that God, in addition to calling us to live a certain lifestyle, which the first part of 1 Peter certainly underscores, that alien, countercultural lifestyle of the pilgrim, of the sojourner, In addition to calling us to live a certain lifestyle that is truly a light in the darkness, he said, I want you also to be speaking, not merely living. I'm wanting you to add words of witness to the witness of your life. The two things are always intended by God to be true. Uh, If we seek to have witness of words and our life doesn't demonstrate the truth of those words, our witness is undercut. If we focus in on the witness of our life and don't say anything, uh, we have an inadequate message going out. As I've shared with you before, people's conclusion is just simply, well, they're a good person, and that must be how you're saved, by being a good person. So God's uh, wisdom is demonstrated in the Scriptures that He wants the words to be true and the life to be real. And the two things connecting together create a light in the midst of the darkness. We talked about some of the prerequisite attitudes to have an effective ministry of witness, words of witness in this world. Last time, we were looking in verses 15 to 17 at some strategies that enable us to have words of witness that please God. Uh, Talking about being prepared to give a defense for the hope that's in you. God wants us to be prepared, spending time ahead of time, figuring out, what it is that we share from the Word of God, how we share it. And I said one of the underlying issues here is that uh, it's been my experience over time that just about everybody I've ever met has a somewhat dismal record of missed opportunities, me included. And so how do we solve the problem of missed opportunities? It's by being prepared, really, uh, so that when the opportunities arise, we're more apt to act on them, enabled by the Spirit of God, of course, but act on them. So when we're not prepared, that we have a tendency to be quiet. 
uh, rather than acting on the things. Then we also talked about as we share that which we've prepared, we do it in a gentle and respectful way. We seek to defend the truth of the gospel, not in a way that produces defensiveness by the way we're sharing it. Now, the gospel will produce its own defensiveness because it's about sin and separation from God and people, the fact that people's hopes are not founded on the right sort of thing. So there'll be defensiveness there. But not defensiveness because of our attitude and how we're sharing it. And then we also talked and ended with the idea that we're to be ambassadors who have a good conscience. I mean, and God is wanting us to be living in such a fashion that our lifestyle <coughs> opens doors rather than closes them. And so they, once again, you see the merging of the link between how we're living and what we're saying. Both become important, two sides of the coin. Now today, starting in verse 18 and on through the end of this chapter, and it should come as no surprise to you that we won't finish that today, but uh, in these verses, uh, God is now turning our attention to the core gospel facts that we're to be sharing and defending. Uh, the summary, really, of what the witness is all about. And while there's other things that we may be sharing and, sh- and speaking with people about beyond these core facts, these core facts better always be part of it. Because if we leave some of them out, we haven't really adequately talked about the gospel. And therefore, these could really be seen as of first importance, the core of the gospel message. You know, in this way, this part of 1 Peter 3 parallels what we encounter at the beginning of the 15th chapter of 1 Corinthians. And that's the chapter about the resurrection, you remember, or the dominant part of that chapter is about that. But in the opening verses, starting in verse 3, it says, For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received. And then he goes ahead and he says that Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures, that he appeared to Cephas, and then to the twelve, and then last of all as to one untimely born, to me. This is one of those sort of of first importance things. Uh, what What he spells out in these verses are things that are meant to be central as we seek to communicate with other people the words of witness, the words about the hope that is really in us. If we make sure that we're sharing these facts and we're prepared to share them, then we can be sure we're making a good defense. Now, we need to share them, as I said earlier, in a gentle and respectful manner and so forth. But we, in terms of content, I don't have to walk away thinking, oh, I left something important out. God is saying, oh, no. Uh, when, when the opportunities arise, I want you to make sure, along with everything else you've said, you've said what's truly of first importance, that you've left the core principles there. So let's look at them together. Uh, the core principles, the core facts of the gospel begin here. In verse 18 we read, For Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the spirit. Suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous. Uh, The first core fact of the gospel is that we're all sinners and therefore separated from God. The gospel makes no sense unless that message has been communicated to people. Our personal sin is the dilemma. We talked about that when we were sharing in the Lord's Supper this morning. Uh, The personal sin is the dilemma. It's that that makes us objects of wrath. 
It's that that has separated us from God. It's that which puts us in the position of, as Ephesians 2 puts it, of being hopeless and helpless and without God in this world. And it is that for which we must account before the God who is really there. The reality that the gospel sharing is always meant to touch on is the reality of our sin. Not just that we've sinned, but that it matters that we've sinned. It's what separates us from God. Think of earlier in 1 Peter, in the second chapter, in verse 25, it says, For you were all straying like sheep, but you've now returned to the shepherd and overseer of your soul. The Bible tells us the gospel message says, You were a straying sheep. It's not that some of you were. All of you were. Every person I talk to about the gospel fits into the category of being a straying sheep. That's, that's the picture. Romans 3.23 said, For all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. Everybody. All-inclusive. In Romans 3.6.23 says, That makes a difference that you're a sinner because the wages of sin is death. But the free gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. All right, so there's the point. In trying to understand what I'm defending, what I'm trying to explain to people, I have to always start by talking about the human dilemma that we are sinners and separated from God. All have sinned. All have broken countless moral sins, but certainly the greatest of the commandments. Everybody sins, and therefore all are separated from God. Because the second part of that, and I'll underscore it, is that we're not only separated by sin, but we face judgment for the sin. The sin not only creates a problem now in separating us from God because we're sinners, it creates an eternal problem for people because there's no solution to that sin. And that sin cannot dwell in the presence of God. And therefore, both now and forever, people are in a hopeless and helpless situation. Hebrews 9.27 says, It's appointed unto man to die once, and after that comes judgment. You say, well, isn't that sort of a negative message to be sharing with people? Well, their life's full of negative message. <laughs> My positive message makes no sense unless I share the negative message. They, got, they have to know why what I'm sharing is good news. They don't understand why what I'm sharing is good news. They have to know the bad news. And the bad news is that this is the truth of your life. It's the truth of my life. And it's why all of us need what only Christ can do. If we try to avoid it, we haven't helped anyone. All men and women are in a very desperate situation. I have not adequately defended my hope if I've not communicated effectively the desperate condition they're in. They're in a desperate condition. Not because they're unhappy. They're in a desperate condition not because life hasn't worked out as they hoped. Not because they would, they're in a more difficult financial circumstance. They're in a desperate situation because all have sinned and come short of the glory of God, and it makes a difference. That is the heart, essence of our message. Not all of our message, but it better not be left out of the message either. And the clarity that the Bible gives us is that we have no answer for our hopeless condition 
unless God does something. And that's exactly what the passage says happened. Here's our hopeless situation, but God did something about it. Uh, He sent his son to die for us, which really comes into the second of these facts. The Lord Jesus Christ died for our sins. It doesn't make any sense that he died for our sins as being an important message if I'm not convinced I'm a sinner, or even more importantly, if I'm not convinced it matters. I meet very few people who are blind enough to claim perfectionism in their lives. I mean, I've I've been involved since I became a Christian at 18 and sharing Christ in lots of settings and lots of people across just about every segment you can imagine in the society. I meet very few people that claim perfection. Almost everybody that I meet claims it doesn't matter. They don't think it makes any difference. Why? Because they're so convinced that if there's a God there, if there's some sort of afterlife, that God who is there and the conditions for that afterlife are sort of like marking on the curve. And uh, and for no matter how much I've not lived up to what I would like to live, I always think I know some other people who did a worse job. Or I see some other examples and I think, okay, well that that balances the curve out. I think I'll get past the cutoff point uh, so that they uh, can get past I was, I never could forget uh, in my first semester as an engineer at the university, entering into a class that was uh, a calc and analytic geometry class, which you had to take before engineering mechanics. I don't even know if they keep the same names on these things anymore. I, get a bit, I, could, I was sitting in this class at Penn State, and the professor said, now I want you all to know right on day one, uh, I, I don't use curves in this class. And he just saw this sigh. I mean, he heard this sigh, and he just saw people's face fall. It's like, then I have no hope in this class, you know. <laughs> because what they'd been banking on is that, well, this is the tough course, but I'll probably situate myself somewhere in the passing thing. And, uh, and then I, and I followed that up. I went to a physics class, which happened to be on the same day. And, uh, and, the, and, the, and the professor said, I want you guys to look around. Uh, most of us were guys. We had a few women, but not too many at that time in the engineering. But so look around. Uh, as you look around, only one of three of you are going to survive this class. You know, none of this, you know, okay, everybody gets a trophy kind of idea. You know, it's like uh, nobody's, nobody's going to make it. Well, okay, that's, that's the reality. In a way, in mercy, uh, God says, listen, I want you to understand something. I don't care how good a life you've tried to live. And I don't care that you may know of people who've done a much worse shipwreck of their life than you have. All of you are without hope and helpless in this world because you have a problem that cannot be resolved. And that problem is the reason I sent my son into this world. The good news of the gospel is that God didn't leave us in the hopeless situation of sin and separation and inescapable judgment. That's what the gospel means. That's why it's good news. That's why I'm always enthused to be able to share it with people. Now, they don't always like God's diagnosis, uh, but at least it's a good news piece. (laughs) I could say, well, this is God's God's diagnosis. If you want to argue it out with them later, you're going to have that chance, but it's going to help you. But uh, God did more than make this diagnosis. He made this solution. And the solution required nothing less than that his son would be sent into this world. 
That's why those phrases that you encounter, for example, in Ephesians chapter 2, after talking about that dismal picture of humanity, in verses 4 and 5 it says, But God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even while we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ, for by grace you've been saved. But God... And you say, well, their, their thinking is that the but God means that well, God will just overlook sin. And my task is to say, well, the but God, as, a, as wonderful as that is, says God doesn't overlook sin. The solution to it required nothing less than him sending his son into this world to die for us. The word made flesh to dwell among us. Uh, far from overlooking sin, God loved us enough to send the Lord Jesus Christ, who then loved us enough to go willingly to the cross on our behalf. Uh, Romans 3 talks about it in this way, verse 21. But now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law, though the law and the prophets bear witness to it. The righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe, so there's no distinction for all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. And they are justified by His grace is a gift through the redemption that's in Christ Jesus. What did God do about our hopeless situation? He sent his son to die for us, taking upon himself the penalty we deserve for our sin. That's why Isaiah 53 puts it this way, verses 5 and 6, but he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. On him was the chastisement that brought us peace, and with his wounds were healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We've turned every one to his own way, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. The Second Corinthians 5.21 puts it, For our sake he made him to be sin, who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. The truth of Christ's death, the shedding of his blood on the cross for us, is central to the gospel. As First Corinthians 15 put it, it's one of those first importance questions. It's first importance because all of us are hopelessly lost and have no solution. Core fact one, core fact two. They come together in that fashion. Jesus Christ did not come to foster world peace. Jesus Christ did not come to help troubled people no longer have to take medications. Jesus Christ did not come to take somebody who is sad and make them happy. He didn't come to set us an example of how to live so that maybe we can score higher on the curve. He came because we were lost and hopelessly, helplessly lost. That's the reason he came. He came to shed his blood. Nothing less could solve our real problem because our problem is sin. And our need is the shed blood of Christ. That's the core of the gospel. That's the core of the good news. You know, there's never anyone I share Christ with, whether it's in the university environment or in the community environment, there's never anyone that I tell them, you're going to feel better if you follow Jesus. I never say that. A lot of people try to do a cell job on Jesus. Somebody could come to Jesus and be killed. 
for coming to Jesus. I don't come to Jesus so I feel better. I come to Jesus so I can be saved. I come to Jesus so I have a future and a hope. I come to Jesus because I have an impossible dilemma, and that's my sin, and it's not something I can answer for. And if something's not done about it, I'll enter into eternity separated from God. That's why we come to Jesus. Now, the Lord may choose to do certain things in people's lives when it serves his purpose. Well, thank the Lord he can do that. But I don't have any right to promise that, and that's not part of my good news. God says, the good news addresses the bad news. And the bad news of a person's life isn't that they're unhappy. It isn't that there's civil unrest in their environment. Well, those things aren't good things, but they're not the bad news. The bad news is that they're a sinner before God and it matters. And they're eternally accountable for it and have no solution to it apart from what Christ has done on the cross. Does that make sense to you? If I'm going to be someone who's able to give an answer for the hope that's in me, I better know what that hope is, and I better know what the people need an answer to. Of what value would it be that a loving God said, well, I've got an answer so that you can solve some civil unrest that's around you. Of course, you're going to go into eternity in hell separated from me. But uh, Jesus came primarily to try to foster world peace. What kind, of a, what kind of answer is that? I mean, that's a silly, silly, ultimately empty answer. Our good news is far greater than that. Yeah? Things may not get better around you. Uh, you, may get, you may be in an accident tomorrow, but you know where you're going. You know who you're with. Absent from the body, present with the Lord because of what Jesus has done for you. you know, let me talk to you about what Jesus has done for you. The gospel rests, by the way, on the fact that Jesus Christ actually physically died on the cross. There's no solution to our problem short of the actual death of the perfect Lamb of God. Earlier in 1 Peter, we were studying that in the first chapter, verses 18 and 19, knowing that you were ransomed from the feudal ways that you inherited from your forefathers, not with perishable things like silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Christ like a lamb without blemish or spot. And if you don't think that his death is that central, consider what's going on in Revelation chapter 5 as the redeemed are singing before the throne. Verse 9, they sang a new song, saying, Worthy are you to take the scroll and open its seals, for you were slain. For you were slain, and by your blood you ransomed people from God, for God from every tribe and language and people and nation. And you've made them a kingdom and priests to our God, that they might reign on the earth. And then I looked and I heard around the throne and the living creatures and elders, the voice of many angels, numbering myriads of myriads and thousands of thousands, and all sang with a loud voice, Worthy is the Lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom, and might, and honor, and blessing. We have no message for a lost world apart from the fact we have a Savior who was slain. No swooning on the cross. No example setting. That's not the message. Message, and they're repeating it and continuing to sing it in heaven, is that we have a Lamb who was slain. Because nothing less than that solved our problem. 
So you better not imply to anybody that anything less than that solves their problem. And if they say, well, I'm not interested in talking about that problem. I've got these other problems in my life. You, you, the right response to that is to say, well, God has things, has, his word speaks to a lot of issues, but none more important than this issue. Let me talk to you again about the lamb that was slain. The third piece of this core fact that we build the gospel around and we communicate is our good news, is that the Lord Jesus Christ, who was slain, rose from the dead. As he puts it in verse 18, For Christ also suffered once for sin, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the Spirit. (laughs) The death, the slaying of the Lamb of God, was followed by his resurrection. Back in 1 Corinthians 15, I read to you of those first importance issues. First importance, he rose from the dead. (laughs) Then he appeared to us. There's no gospel without a slain lamb of God. And there is no gospel without a risen Savior. They're both indispensable. People tell me, well... I don't like all this stuff about about blood, you know. And, uh, you know, but how do you expect to attract this era? You talk about the blood. You even have songs about the shedding of the blood. And what's that about? And you say, "Well, I'm glad you asked." And then you can share with them. And that's the reason we celebrate and sing songs about it—not to be morbid, but to be grateful to God for the wonder of it. And I can't be grateful to God for the wonder of it unless I understand my true problem. And my true problem is that required nothing less than the shed blood of the Lamb. But then I also say, He not just died for me. He rose again. I serve a risen Savior. The resurrection took place. Every Easter, as long as I'm here, anyway, we look at 1 Corinthians 15 and talk about the resurrection because that's what it's about. And... uh, Understand that it's of first importance that the resurrection took place. And we talk about in verses 12 to 20 in 1 Corinthians 15 about why if the resurrection hadn't taken place, we are still in hopeless, helpless condition. Let me read quickly those verses to you. Verse 13 in chapter 15 of 1 Corinthians, But if there's no resurrection of the dead, not even Christ has been raised, and if Christ has not been raised, our preaching's useless. So is your faith. In other words, your defense is useless, whatever you're trying to share. More than that, we would then be found to be false witnesses about God, for we testified that God raised Christ from the dead. And if he didn't raise him, if in fact the dead are not raised, and if the dead are not raised, then Christ has not been raised either. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile, and you are still in your sins, still in that helpless, hopeless situation without God in this world. Then those who have fallen asleep in Christ are lost. And if it's only in this life that we hope in Christ, we're to be pitied more than all people. But Christ has indeed been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. Our preaching's in vain if the resurrection didn't occur. I've talked to you about that word before, kinos in the Greek, meaning empty, worthless, useless. <laughs> it's a waste of time to share it with people if that didn't happen. Talk about a waste of time. The gospel's a waste of time if we don't have a risen Savior. He says, our faith is in vain. Uh, 
People in our society, as I've shared with you before, believe that there's something redemptive in faith to the extent that if you, have, you can almost have faith in faith. As long as somebody believes in something, there's something redemptive and valuable in that. But the scripture says, oh no, oh no. If, if your trust and confidence is in the wrong thing, it's in vain. Meaning useless. Again, kinos in the Greek. Worthless, useless. There's no value in faith unless faith is focused. So I remember somebody talking to me about on the campus about, you know, they have great faith in this. And I said, uh, I'm so sorry to hear that. I, in fact, that type of faith is to be pitied. And, and their response to it was, well, what? what? You know, everybody else thinks it's wonderful that I have this intensity of faith. And I said, well, it is in, in, in a sense of uh, effect. It would be wonderful if it was in the right thing. If you don't have it in the right thing, it's worthless. Of what value is there that you have, quote, more faith than somebody else if you're not having the faith in the right thing? You know, they're, they're your, your dilemma. Uh, the passage says God's word is not trustworthy. In other words, we're, we're bearing witness. We who have been the authors of the scriptures, the God-breathed word has come through us. We're being, we're being witnesses that Christ, God, Christ was raised from the dead. If he, didn't, if he didn't do it, what else could you believe? I mean, how do you sift through it and decide, well, what's God's and what isn't God's? By the way, some people try to do that anyway. You know, how much of this did God say? What didn't he say? You know, it's like, hey, that's a useless thing. Uh, that means you only have confidence in a way in your own, your own rationality to decide, okay, well, I think this sounds like God and that doesn't sound like God. That's not a very foundational place for faith. No, God either said or he didn't say it. And if he said it, that's all God breathed and we have to, we have to contend with it. And at any rate, he then says in verse 17 of that 1 Corinthians 15, we're still in our sins. And there we get back to the beginning of the issue that we started with today. If we're still in our sins, if Christ hasn't been raised from the dead, then we have no solution to the unsolvable problem. The sin is what kept us separated from God in the first place, and for which we couldn't atone ourselves. So you're, if the resurrection hadn't occurred, if the Lamb of God had not been slain, we're still in our sins. But if the Lamb of God who was slain was not raised from the dead, we'd still be in our sins. So... Why do I have hope? Because the Word was made flesh and dwelt among us. Lived perfect life. Went to the cross willingly on my behalf, was slain. And he rose again. Rose again. That's the reason I have hope. He also said in that 1 Corinthians 15, the dead in Christ have actually perished. If we're only hoping in this life, the ones who do that, they've perished. So again... No solution for their sin, but brothers and sisters understand what that means. No solution for yours either. Because if the gospel is not true, everybody's perishing. Everybody. But that's the nature of the gospel. Remember, that's the bad news that starts. We've, we're sinners and separated and perishing. Good news, God cares. And his response to it isn't, well, I just won't make my standards so high. No, that's no solution. Because he's still a perfect, righteous, holy God. So the solution is, I'll send a solution to your sin. One who is perfect and righteous. Who will take, and of infinite value and worth, because he's the very God-man. The Word made flesh to dwell among us. He will die willingly on your behalf. And then I will raise him from the dead as proof that that was sufficient. So that when Jesus said, it's finished. It was. It was. Now, that's good news, all right? That's, you leave that message with some people, 
They may not react to it or respond to it right at that moment, but you've left them with something worth thinking about. Because, not because you're so clever, but because that's what God said. And it can have its penetrating effect. I always like verse 20, though, 1 Corinthians 15, but in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead. <laughs> Talking about facts here, you know. You know, if he hadn't been, all these things are true. But in fact, he was. Just like in fact, he was slain on the cross. Just like in fact, he was word made flesh and dwelt among us and was revealed born at Bethlehem. Fact, 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 fact. Fact in space and time. And I'm sharing with people, here are the facts in space and time that yield a solution to the unsolvable. It's a solution you can act on. Now, next time, we'll continue on and look at two other facts that the passage talks to us about. The Lord Jesus Christ ascended back into heaven, and the Lord Jesus Christ is Lord right now, and his lordship will be evident everywhere as he returns. Well, there's also a couple other puzzling parts of this end of the third chapter that, Lord willing, we'll look at next week. One of those is, what in the world does it mean uh, uh, saved, born, baptism which corresponds to this now saves you? What's that all about? You know, And uh, so we'll talk about that a little bit, try to help you understand some of that. And, uh, and then also, what in the world does it mean he went and proclaimed to the spirits in prison? Both points, by the way, that heretics have taken and run with, uh, ripping them out of the context of the passage and used them to build amazingly speculative and wrong pictures of the world and the future. Well, that's where we'll turn, Lord willing, and I hope you'll be able to be with us as we do that. Brothers and sisters, we have good news, but it's not good news because I find out what people want and then I try to make Jesus package into that. You know, so like, well, this is what they think they want. And so I'm going to make Jesus look like he's the one who will answer what they want. The good news is, I don't care what you want, let me tell you what you need. And not just let me, I'll tell you what God said you need. And then I'll tell you the wonder that God loved you enough to actually provide a solution to what you really need. And I don't discount this other need that you may think and want that you have has some legitimacy in your life but nowhere near the legitimacy and significance of this. The good news is, God knows that too, and he's provided an answer for you. Well, think about these things. Uh, Make sure that when you share with people, you share that which is not only challenging, but eternally true. Your task isn't to try to trick them into somehow aligning with whatever they sort of have in their mind Christianity is all about. Your task is to share with them, to defend the truth, and know that that gospel is the power of God unto salvation to those who believe, and it is living and active as the word of God is when it's planted in people's lives. And your task? Be an ambassador. Speak not only live in a certain fashion. Let's pray together. (coughs) Heavenly Father, we thank you for this day. Thank you that we could be together. 
We thank you, you're a God who loves us and has a solution to the unsolvable. And that you've gone to great length throughout your scriptures to clarify for us the unsolvable problem and to clarify for us the amazing, unexpected answer. Lord, help us to be people who study to show ourselves approved, rightly dividing your word, so that we can share the wonderful answer to the true problem. Well, thank you for that, for we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.